0: This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded.
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and Free virtual doctor visits 24 7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at IBX.com. Talk Radio
2: 1210, WPHD, WPHD, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross.
3: Listen, 7 months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. <laughs>
2: Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
4: Good afternoon, and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. In January of last year, we talked about several habits that we try to change as we started that new year, including a plan to quit smoking. We spent some time on the topic of vaping but we revisit it today because the advice is definitely worth repeating. Dr. Jamie Garfield returns to discuss vaping, its original purpose, and what you should know about possible risks. Sometimes people use cannabis products in vaping, so later in the show, there'll be an opportunity to discuss current research on medical marijuana and a review of risks of recreational marijuana. We welcome Dr. Jamie Garfield, a professor of thoracic medicine and surgery at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University, where she's also a clinical course director. She's also a member of the clinical faculty of the Internal Medicine Residency at Temple University Hospital. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you for having me. So e-cigarettes, they were originally designed with a good intention. We want to see people quit smoking, or as you say, smoking cessation. And it seemed like a pretty clever a healthier alternative to smoking, conventional, combustible, as you like to say, smoke, inflammation, and a great alternative to combustible cigarettes. The plan, if it looks and tastes like a cigarette, it's just like other substitutes, like sugar-free soda or that kind of thing, and it would still have the hand-to-mouth ritual of smoking, it would be safer in some respects, but we need our listeners to be aware of the multiple risks. So I'm going to have you take it away. And what is vaping? And how does an e-cigarette work? Sure. So um, e-cigarettes were
3: developed by a pharmacist, actually, in China, Han Lick, and he apparently developed these because his father died of lung cancer and wanted to have a safer alternative. Um, But it's not such a, you know, such a sweet and warm story. I mean, these products maybe had the ability to be used for harm reduction, but they were um, co-opted by big tobacco, and they were marketed to just increase their use. Um, and the, you know, we are seeing the results of this epidemic of, of vaping mostly amongst our, our youth. What an e-cigarette is, is it's a device um, which has a battery, some kind of a rechargeable battery, and there's a heating ele- element or an atomizer. And that heating element will heat up a liquid, uh, an e-liquid, and we can talk about what elements are it- within this liquid. And then there's a mouthpiece. And that, um, in the process of heating up this liquid, an aerosol is created, and the user will inhale this aerosol. There's a lot of variability to these devices um, in terms of what, can, what kind of e-liquids are uh, chemicals can be put within the e-liquid um and also uh what it, what it looks like there's so many different variations you know in older versions look very much like cigarettes but then they kind of evolved and the more recent versions are disposable um, they're not refillable and they look sort of like a flash drive um, and you know we can spend a lot of time talking about what goes into these products because they're not safe um, are they safer than combustible cigarettes maybe um, Maybe that was their intention, but I, I don't think that uh, we have a lot of stories about how they are not, f- in fact, safe at all. Yeah. Um, and and I'm glad that you brought me on to talk about this.
4: Yes. Well, and, uh, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of important information, but kudos to you because it is a huge, um, I, should I use the word addiction? When people become addicted to nicotine, it's only below opioids in terms of percentage. It's about 32% likelihood to become addicted to smoking. It's a tough habit to kick. And for the longest time, it was it was considered, uh, well, it was mainstream. So we're learning a lot from, from your good work as well. So I always think if people have never seen a device, it almost is, looks like a kazoo. <laughs> you know, we used to play them when we were <laughs> little, but then the more sophisticated ones. So if they look like flash drives, it's harder, as you say, if the increases in adolescents and young adults, it's easier to hide them from parents. So let's go along and talk about the main ingredients that could be found in in the liquids. Sure. So the e liquids will um, many of them will have nicotine,
3: but there are also some that have um, synthetic nicotine. And these um, on the on the packaging they'll say no nicotine is in this, um, but actually in fact these are s- synthetically derived nicotine. There can also be cannabis, um, CBD or THC um, oils, um, and then there's stabilizers like propylene glycol, glycerin, um, which can um, stabilize the liquid. Um, Allow it to be packaged and last longer, um, and these things, uh, you know, have not been tested in terms of their safety for inhalation, um, and then flavorings. So flavorings can be. Um, things like mint and menthol, um, things like tobacco flavoring, uh, which, you know, certainly is, I think, the most obvious flavoring um, in terms of helping those who are using combustible cigarettes switch to electronic cigarettes. But then there are flavorings that absolutely make no sense. They're flavorings that have no business being in um, electronic cigarettes, um, things that sound like ice cream flavors, truly, um, you know, not just fruit flavors, but, you know, marshmallow and candy and, and ice cream. And, and so these are what, these flavorings are what make these products really attractive to people who did not previously use combustible cigarettes and who pick up nicotine uh, for the first time in the form of an electronic cigarette.
4: Yeah, especially as you say, these like middle schoolers, hard to believe. Um, and the other thing is there are over 7,000 flavors. I want to revisit what you mentioned about the stabilizers or what are labeled as humectants. They they retain mm-hmm. moisture, which I think, correct me if I'm wrong, are supposed to give you a better vape, right? Aren't they supposed to add to the, the, the aerosol? And people walk away thinking or people get involved thinking, hmm, I'm inhaling a steam. There's no- right nicotine so i'm good to go or you can opt to have nicotine i want to touch quickly to what you said about synthetic nicotine because when we're talking about um, synthetic drugs uh, when there are when there are tests to detect drugs in urine or blood and we get into the synthetic category you can't test for them and so they can't be illegal if we can't find them etc and that's a whole separate show but the synthetic nicotines Tell us a little bit about that. Was that also an idea that would get people away from combustible cigarettes, and now that's gone into the wrong hands? I mean, no, the synthetic, the the move towards
3: synthetic nicotine was created by electronic cigarette companies who wanted to evade the regulations that were being imposed by the FDA. And so while the FDA sort of recently, over, you know, began to regulate or impose some regulations or some suggestions for, um, the product standards, um, for these electronic cigarettes, um, you know the the electronic cigarette companies say, well, fine, we'll just we'll use synthetic nicotine and that won't count. Um, and We're thankfully, started. the yeah the FDA did uh, or the the Biden administration responded to that and included synthetic nicotine in the um, under the jurisdiction of the FDA. Thank goodness, um, because otherwise, I think that would have been a huge loophole that would that could have been exploited. But I mean, just that, I guess that one other point I want to make is that we make a list of all these substances that are in the liquid, um, and then we heat them, and then we have no idea. How these compounds change, and so while we really don't even know um, the packaging on the outside of these electronic cigarettes does not assure what's inside the e liquid, uh, so we don't even know that, and we certainly don't know um, what happens to some of these compounds when they're heated. Um, Some of them very well may convert um, into you know, frankly, uh, carcinogenic compounds um, or or injurious compounds that can cause oxidative stress and and epithelial or injury to the lungs.
4: Mm -hmm. And uh, revisiting, I was starting to say that those humectants that make a better vape can uh, degrade into formaldehyde, acetaldehyde, and people don't need to know those exact words, but they are known to be cancer-causing agents. And then the flavoring, the one specific one that's in a lot of literature, diacetyl, and mm-hmm. that can cause popcorn lung. We're going to talk about lung damage in a minute, but I, I remember reading that that's the buttery flavor on microwave popcorn. And right. um, so, again, if we want younger people to be more attracted, we're going to add that sweet buttery flavor. But it, when it's heated, as you say, it's a different animal. If it's liquid, right. it's on your microwave popcorn, okay. But the people in the factories who were making it and then they heat it and they're inhaling particles, tell Let's hear about that. The, the the fat droplets from that lipoid, um, or that's fat, I guess, can go into the, the tiniest sacks of your lungs, and that's it. They don't work. Yeah, I mean, so the lungs are, are
3: water-soluble, and so only substances that are, are water-soluble are going to be safe for inhalation. And so, yeah, a lot of these um, liquid components um, may have been tested for ingestion, but they haven't been tested for inhalation.
4: And in terms of public health policy, uh, Jamie, let's spend a few minutes on that because you started to say that there was some progress more recently in about 2020. And what was that? Tell us about what happened in 2009 with the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act, and then 2020. Yeah, sure.
3: So in 2009, the the Family Smoking Prevention and Tobacco Control Act was signed in by the Obama administration, and this finally gave um, the FDA jurisdiction over tobacco products, and that was a, a huge win. Um, but it meant that all these e-cigarettes that were already, and, you know, that's the reason why we have, um, you know, um, labels on the outside of combustible cigarettes. Uh, we know that the, the um, chemicals that go in, the tar components that go into combustible cigarettes, that's all because we now have the ability to regulate um, combustible cigarettes. But electronic cigarettes were not included in that um, in that bill. And so many years, they just went unchecked. And only recently, um, with this new administration, there's been a number of really important tobacco control policies that have put into place. One is Tobacco 21, so you have to be 21 years of age to be able to buy tobacco products, which was not the case before. Um, additionally, there was a synthetic li- nicotine loophole that was closed. There was a flavoring ban, and uh, specifically about menthol cigarettes. Um, nicotine concentration reduction was implemented in mean, a number of different policy um, Uh, policies were put in place that have had a huge or expect to have a huge impact on tobacco consumption and particularly electronic cigarette use
4: yeah because how many adolescents or young people are going to stop and go on the internet and read the benefits and risks of vaping and so so how do parents help protect their kids i guess education at school kind of
3: yeah, I mean, one of the things that the pandemic told, taught us is that these conversations have to be at home because sometimes kids are not going to be at school. So we can't help uh, hope that our um, our kids' school teachers and um, guidance counselors are going to be talking to them about it. We need to be talking about it at home. And the American Lung Association has a lot of really wonderful resources and a campaign that's out right now, Get Your Head Out of the Clouds, which is directed towards parents, um, reminding them, like, your kids are exposed to these products
4: and we need to make sure that they, they know what to do about it. Let's spend a little more time on that after the break, Jamie. Stay with us, and we'll be right back.
3: Thanks for listening
5: to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor
6: at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com.
4: back on your radio doctor with dr jamie garfield professor uh from temple university hospital and from the temple lung center jamie we talked about um vaping and how it's evolved and and why it's a problem for all people but who are the people using e-cigarettes
3: So um, adults use e-cigarettes. There's no question that they're, you know, about two and a half percent of U.S. adults are current e-cigarette users, and that equates to about five and a half million. But, uh, you know, uh, young adults and teens are the sort of more um, challenging and the more concerning uh, market of users here. Um, The adults, about two and a half percent or 2.3 percent of adults. But when you look at the kids who are 18 and under, we're talking about 14 percent um, of, of U.S. teens and young adults. Um, that number was even 25% a few years ago. So in 2019, e-cigarette use was the highest it ever was. and um, We had 25%, uh, you know, one in four U.S. kids were, uh, high school and middle school kids were using electronic cigarettes. The numbers have decreased slightly since then. And some of that has to do with these policies that we just discussed. Some of it has to do with the pandemic and the way kind of a lot of things changed. So, um, but we've got the number down a bit. It's still way too high. So 14% in 2022 equates to 5 million kids um, who are currently using e-cigarettes. And it's not equal distribution. It's not all kids, all the same type of kids. It is um, more um, directed. I mean, Black uh, black people uh, have a much higher incidence of using particularly menthol products, which are more addictive and more uh, difficult to quit from. Um, c- cigarette use, um, particularly... E-cigarette use is more common in the LGBTQ population, so it's not sort of an equal
4: distribution of, um, of impact. And knowing that information, you glean it from, am I right, the National Youth Tobacco Survey, some of that information, which can direct our resources, who needs more help in shifting away from that, that behavior, sure. Yeah. And, and, and then how do we use our resources to educate parents, teachers and get those programs in place because these, these are kids they don't know. And they think they're inhaling steam. That's what I, that's my impression. Plus again, when adults, a lot of the adults are previous users and you stress, listen out there. If you've never done, you know, smoke conventional cigarettes, don't start with vaping. Don't think it's this um, new habit. That's that's so innocent because it's not, Right. I mean, that's that's a really good point. So, and
3: I'm sorry I didn't bring that up, but uh, a lot of the adults who pick up e-cigarettes are current combustible cigarette users, and they're looking for an opportunity to switch from combustible cigarettes to electronic cigarettes. The problem is that doesn't often happen, and most adults who pick up electronic cigarettes continue to use both combustible cigarettes and electronic cigarettes. Um, for kids, uh, we most of the kids who use, and kids, I'm just saying, you know, less than 18-year-olds, right. um, most of those who, who use these products were never combustible cigarette users. They picked up um, electronic cigarettes from nothing. We developed an entire, you know, we, we cultivated an entire generation of nic- nicotine addicted people um, because of the availability and the appeal of these products.
4: And and I wonder, how, just as a mother and as a physician and listening to parents talk to me, and how possible is it to implement the Tobacco twenty one, uh, you know, if if kids are smart enough or clever enough to get somebody's big brother or somebody walking into a convenience store and say, hey, I'll give you ten bucks if you buy me some, you know, it, it's it's hard, but um, and it's interesting too that survey to find out who is you vaping was that uh, drop after twenty nineteen? Of course, kids are uh, studying remotely. Um, so they have mm-hmm. less access, but did it change how the survey was done? So all those things we have to learn. This is new to us. Listen, look at me. This is the new sign was for more, please. more. We have to do more data, get more data. Right. So, yeah. So in, in 2019, it
3: was, uh, uh, this is the National Youth Tobacco Survey. It's been conducted for years and years and years. And it, um, it demonstrated this really rapid rise in youth e-cigarette um, use in 2019, and then it went down in 2020, and then it went down further in 2021, and everyone was like, wow, this is wonderful. Are we really getting a handle on this? But the 2021 data was, as you said, captured remotely, and so it really couldn't be compared to the 2020 or 2019 data. And now we have 2022 back, and it shows uh, that those like low numbers were probably not realistic, and it is higher than, than it was in 2020 and 2021, but not nearly as high as 2019. All of this to say, we haven't fixed the problem yet. Um, a
4: lot of these policies have had an impact, but there's so much work to be done. Sure. Because you want to study vaping, A, to see if it is effective for quitting smoking, but B, to see if there are long-term health effects, which brings us to your big concern about damaging these beautiful, healthy lungs. And one of the I guess the category of e-Valley. What is that tell our listeners? If you want, sure.
3: e-Valley is electronic cigarette and vaping associated lung injury, and um, maybe you remember it. We first started talking about it in 2019. Um, all these sort of otherwise healthy kids came down with severe respiratory failure, and and some many were hospitalized, and some even died. Some got lung transplants. I mean, this was um, an awful thing, and it came in a blip uh, really quickly in 2019, and it was sort of done by 2020. The thing is, and, you know, people in my world have been talking about this over the last couple of years, trying to understand what happened and how to prevent it from happening again, sure. um, is that it didn't just come in 2019. It really probably existed before then, and it didn't go away in 2020. It still exists. But uh, if we're not, um, if you know, if the government and the FDA is not, you know, recording and reporting um, these cases, we are have no way of actually keeping track of them. Um, the the government did um, sort out um, a substance that they thought was responsible for EVALI, which was vitamin E. The interesting thing is the vitamin E acetate was mostly in the THC um, e-liquids. So mostly it was the cannabis-based e-liquids that had vitamin E acetate. Although there might've been some um, EVALI cases that were caused by nicotine only e-cigarette devices. Uh, So we found uh, the vitamin E acetate. uh, They sort of cracked down on these informal dealers and companies that were um, creating or distributing these products that had this um, contaminant or this substance, which is perfectly healthy or perfectly fine to ingest vitamin E. We all take it. Many of us take it. um, We get it at the GNC. But when you aspirate or when you inhale it is, it is exactly. not safe. And so the, the, I think the big takeaway from Evali is that it's, it, it probably existed before. Uh, it probably still exists now. And although we were able to isolate vitamin E acetate as a cause, there will be more causes because until these products are carefully regulated, there is no way to prevent this from happening again.
4: And, and for our listeners, when we talk about regulation, it means tested by the Food and Drug Administration or some oversight that then the label reflects what is in the product, whether it's a probiotic. We talk about that all the time. Hardly any probiotics match what they say in the label. A pinch of this, a pinch of that. This is can be life-threatening. And then the other thing was, can we spend a millisecond on distinguishing for our listeners who don't know the difference between THC and cannabis? When that's added, if you know, if people, if people, I mean, cannabis is
3: mm-hmm. cannabis is just the other word for marijuana. So, you some people use the word cannabis, some people use the word marijuana, and and cannabis products can have a proportion of THC or CBD. Mm-hmm. And so these are the two chemicals that make up um these cannabis products. And some products have more of the THC and others have more of the CBD. Um sometimes you can choose the percentage that you're you know that you're using,
4: but many cases you are not able to do that. Right. So cannabis is the umbrella term for cannabinoid, which is CBD mm-hmm. and THC, but THC is the hallucinogen. So people need to know that too because if they don't, um that's that's another area of gray zone that can be uh risky. For, for people of any age. So the American Thoracic Society workshop, tell us what the, the goals, and you're a member of that, you're a professor at Temple. What are the areas we wanna target? So the ATS kind of put together a working group
3: to discuss eValley, and the, the sort of takeaway points were that really three things need to be um, need to be considered and need to be developed. One is that there has to be better public health and regulatory action. So we need yeah. registry and biorepository. We need uh, FDA regulation or product standards. Um, we yes. need patient and, and um, public education. So that's number one. The second thing is we need better clinical initiatives. So we need to be clear on you <laughs> what avali is, uh, what it looks like, how to treat it. Um, we need to have guidelines or recommendations for how to follow it. We need electronic medical record codes. We have no way, if I want to search everyone in my hospital who had evoli I have no way to do that because there's no EMR code that allows me to clearly search. And the third thing we need is is basic and translational science initiatives. So we need to actually study the chemicals um, that are in these products so that we, we know their health impact and that has a, that's for electronic cigarettes that have nicotine
4: and also THC-based right. products. So aside from education, what would be the practical alternative to vaping? Medications to get people who are nicotine uh, addicted?
3: Yeah, so I wish I wish that were
4: true. We have really
3: good FDA recommendations for which pharmacotherapy to use when we have adult smokers who we want to help to quit smoking. We use medications like nicotine replacement therapy and varenicline, but we do not have the same guidelines for those who are addicted to nicotine in the form of electronic cigarettes. And so, for my you know adult users, um, nicotine addicted folks, um, and kids who are using electronic cigarettes. All that we can recommend is
4: education and behavioral counseling. Well said. So we don't want it, we don't want e-cigarettes or vaping to normalize smoking behavior. Dr. Jamie Garfield, no, we don't want to inhale anything and we don't want to be adding coconut oil and shampoo and all kinds of stuff to the vape that can just destroy your lungs. And we want right. to look and see if if people are smoking and they're trying to shift away It has to be a complete substitute. Don't combine regular or conventional smoking of cigarettes with vaping. You're doubling the exposure to danger. And if you've never smoked any other uh, cigarettes or tobacco products, please don't start with this. Yeah. Tobacco products are the number one
3: preventable cause of death in the United States and in the world. Um, There's there's no reason why we can't... um, you know, we can't be tobacco free, why we can't be nicotine free. It doesn't, uh, you know, I think harm reduction strategies have their place. But there's every reason to believe that we are capable of communicating to our, you know, our community, um, that um, these nicotine and tobacco products are not safe, and that we can be without them, we can be completely tobacco -free. free.
4: Well, I think Philadelphia is very fortunate to have you as a leader, Jamie, because your work is incredible. And congratulations on becoming a professor since we last spoke. Uh, you certainly deserve it, and you're doing fantastic work. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, and your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search your radio doctor. It's health education on demand.
7: Hi, I'm Steve Wicke, CEO of Recovery Centers of America at Dev, one of your addiction experts from RCA. I often get asked what to look for in a treatment program. How can you tell a good treatment center? The first thing to look for is licensure and accreditation, typically from the Joint Commission, the same organization that accredits hospitals. You want to look for a facility that answers the phone 24 hours a day. You want to look for a facility that provides around-the-clock nursing and medical staff, master's-level therapists. And a facility that employs a variety of approaches to treatment. Not all methodologies and interventions work for every patient. You want to look for evidence based interventions. You want to look for a facility that provides a medication for addiction treatment. And you want a facility that provides 12 step support options. You also want a facility that provides all levels of care, not just medical detox or medically monitored detox and residential care, but also partial hospitalization and outpatient. And finally, you want want to look for a facility that has an active alumni group as peer support is a vital and important part of recovery so as you begin 2023 and look for a fresh start reach out to recovery centers of america if you or one of your loved ones needs help with drugs or alcohol call 877 938-0618 or visit recoverycenters of com slash dev we answer the phone and admit patients 24 hours a day seven days a week
1: I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com.
5: When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in
3: healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash questions.
0: Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC.
4: Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. We just spoke about the risks of vaping, including those situations that include cannabis products like THC. Our next guest is here to talk about her research with medical marijuana, its possible benefits, and visit some of the ongoing problems with the use of recreational marijuana. Dr. Sarah Jane Ward is a PhD, an assistant professor of neural sciences, and an assistant professor in the Center of Substance Abuse Research at the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University. Welcome, Sarah Jane. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Well, in America, and right here in Philadelphia, we think of Kensington, and and not just there, we're experiencing an opioid crisis. And we know that 20% of adults in America deal with chronic pain, and your work could produce a much safer alternative. You have a PhD uh, during which you did research in substance abuse. How did your work evolve now to medical marijuana? I think that's something people would be fascinated by.
8: Yeah, so I do. I feel fortunate that as a cannabis scientist currently, I have a background in substance abuse. And so I'm cognizant of trying to balance those two things. And so in my PhD research, I was interested in understanding the neurobiology of substance abuse. And my work focused on understanding cocaine and heroin addiction. And what are the changes Mm -hmm. in the brain that occur? And can we? harness that information to come up with novel treatment strategies, pharmacological treatment strategies for substance abuse. And so at that time, my work wasn't focused or even considering cannabis use disorder. um, But in studying more about the Uh, systems in the brain that are involved in addiction, I learned about the cannabinoid system. And so we have a system in our brains that is similar to the opioid system, if, if folks are similar with that, and so that we know we have opioid-like chemicals and proteins in our brain that are responsive to drugs like morphine and heroin. And the same is true for cannabis and cannabinoids. So our brain makes its own chemicals that are like some of the chemicals in cannabis. And so therefore our brain can respond to the chemicals in cannabis when we use them. So that made my interests turn to cannabis and understanding how the cannabis or cannabinoid system in the brain can mediate things like euphoria, like drug reward, and... Uh, that sort of you know brought me down this rabbit hole, so to speak, of understanding, well, what are all of the effects of cannabis? We know of the effects of cannabis that mediate addiction and have impacts on sensation, perception, cognition. But then we have the other side of cannabis where people claim to use cannabis for the alleviation of pain or for the alleviation of anxiety. And so I was interested in sort of bringing these two worlds together to understand the problem of substance use disorder, but to see whether or not within that there are answers um, within the cannabis plant to also Treat other things like chronic pain. And so that's Mm -hmm. sort of how I went from being a substance abuse researcher to a pain researcher in the cannabis world.
4: So, to review a few basic terms for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, cannabis is the all encompassing term for the plant, the the leaves, the stem, the seeds, all of which have uh, several hundred components. And the ones people hear about are. Uh, cannabidiol or CBD, which is non-psychoactive, and THC, which is the psychoactive or the portion that can make somebody get high or or change their mentation. So your research so far, your, we know that chemotherapy in, an, in its attempt to alter cell metabolism, it can wipe out the tumor or hopefully work on the tumor, but can also cause side effects like nerve damage. And the uh, neuropathy or pathology of the nerves can result in weakness, numbness, burning, pain, really difficult, usually in the hands and feet. Let's talk about how you've come up with sort of a CBD analog and how that's been Fruitful.
8: yes uh, so as I mentioned uh, my you know my focus when I learned about cannabis and I learned about these different chemicals THC and CBD uh, I really wanted to stay away from the THC part uh, and you know not all scientists do there's many scientists who are interested in the therapeutic potential of the THC chemical uh, but be- as a substance abuse researcher uh, I was concerned with the THC um, part of that and thought well you know, some people may want to seek pain relief from cannabis without the high or other potential adverse effects. And I learned about CBD. And so, uh, as you mentioned, CBD is a non-psychoactive chemical found in the cannabis plant. It works pretty differently on the brain than THC does. And uh, I actually thought about this topic for chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain uh, because I attended a conference where a colleague of mine was talking about CBD for the treatment of cancer itself. I'm not a cancer biologist. That's not what I spend my time thinking and reading about. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. So cannabis can be used to treat pain, but here somebody's saying that there's a chemical in the plant that can treat cancer. And my brain just sort of went, what about cancer pain? Um, Sadly, I had a friend at the time who was undergoing cancer chemotherapy, and she was experiencing chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain. So I went into the laboratory, I did some research, and found that you can model chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain in rodents. So I brought a rodent model of chemotherapy-induced neuropathic pain into the laboratory and tested CBD and lo and behold, we found really profound positive effects of treating the rodents with CBD to either prevent or treat the pain associated with chemotherapeutic drugs. And so you Mm -hmm. mentioned this other synthetic CBD that we've been studying. Uh, This is in collaboration with a company out of Doylestown, Pennsylvania called Neuropathics. And they've come up with a way to synthesize in the laboratory a chemical that is similar to CBD um, to try to make this a more marketable, druggable, and potentially more safe and effective product. And we've been characterizing that drug in the laboratory as well. And it, it works
4: as well, if not better than CBD. And I wanted to roll back just for a moment, not to interrupt, but what I learned from talking to you the other day, great conversation was that CBD appears to have anti-inflammatory and neuroprotective effects. So it's perfect for this situation. So many of the diseases we're studying now relate to inflammation. Look at COVID. It inflames the lining of arteries. It causes clots and strokes. It inflames your lungs, all these things. Inflammation is not our friend. Um, And you mentioned that your research is all in mice and rats, which because I guess we don't want to be experimenting with CBD and THC. But the other thing that the literature stresses is you're talking about treating side effects of cancer uh treatments, but there's nothing in the literature that suggests that um medical marijuana cures cancer or is a treatment for the cancer itself, right? We want to be really clear about that.
8: Well I mean, there's people nothing, are studying no. it. Right. People are studying it. They're, the research with cannabis and cancer itself goes back to the 1970s. And there is pretty exciting evidence in cells, in animals that CBD and THC may have very promising effects against cancer cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are clinical trials that are now also starting to investigate this as well. But mm-hmm. it is, you know, mm-hmm. in its relative not frequency. there yet. Yes.
4: We're just not there. Yet. Okay. Um, so, what's the difference between medical marijuana and recreational? Use marijuana or what some people call adult use. This is such an
8: important question because I think people presume that there's more of a difference than there is. And I would say that in most ways, there is no difference between recreational cannabis and medical cannabis. The differences lie in legislation, what is legal for someone to obtain, and the reported reason someone gives for using it. But the product itself may or may not be different at all. So if you go into a medical cannabis dispensary in several states, including Pennsylvania, uh, you can obtain dry flour or bud uh, to use as medical cannabis that may be indistinguishable in most ways from cannabis that somebody purchases uh, to use recreationally. So the term medical cannabis does not tell you anything about what the product is necessarily. It's, it's explaining the fact that you have a medical cannabis card. If you're in Pennsylvania, you can go to a medical cannabis dispensary and you can purchase a product that your intention is to use in a medical way. And th- that's really, um, the, the current difference between medical and recreational cannabis.
4: Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you this a little bit later, but we might as well uh, advance to this. So if a patient has a medical card, how does that process work? They they see a designated doctor or a doctor who has a certification or something, or how does that work?
8: Correct. Yeah, so in, in Pennsylvania, um, physicians have to register Um, to be recommenders and they go through the Pennsylvania department of health to go through that process. And there is, there is a process that they have to go through some amount of training um, to become a certified recommender in the state of Pennsylvania. And so a patient needs to first find a physician who is a approved recommender. The patient goes to the physician, describes their symptoms The physician's job is to make sure that the patient's symptoms or intentions are in line. Yeah, yeah. and and there are, you know, in Pennsylvania, there's a list of 20 or so um, indications that are approved for the medical cannabis um, patient to use their card for. If all of that matches up, the patient gets their card, and then they go to a medical cannabis
4: dispensary. So I'm going to stop you there, if I may. yes. I would think people think this again, just like we talked about vaping. There's so many parallels here that people say medical marijuana. It's all good. It's labeled. You're not going to your neighborhood drugstore or pharmacy and saying, "Here's my prescription," and uh, it's going to say, "Take two milligrams of the uh, this every day." They're walking into the dispensary where the the fella or gal behind the desk is explaining what what's available. Am I right about that? Or, yes, and again, for, the labels don't match and, and all that kind yes, of thing. So, so for the most
8: part, physicians are not involved in recommending a particular product or dosage. Um, and this is for many reasons, including the fact that many physicians probably don't feel that they're qualified to do so. And so, and at the Pennsylvania medical cannabis dispensaries, a pharmacist or physician an actual pharmacist or physician does need to be on staff. And so there is a level of education of the folks working in the dispensaries. Um, But yes, it it is typically that person that is recommending what kind of product, what's in the product. And then as you alluded to, there's the whole other question of, is what's in that product actually what is stated on the label? Is the level of THC listed on that product accurate? Is the level of CBD listed on that product accurate? And those are currently the only two cannabinoid chemicals that have to be listed yeah. um, as,
4: as you know, what what is contained in the product. Right. So there is a monthly max that a person can purchase, but Correct. we need more regulation. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Sarah Jane Ward from Temple University.
0: Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross.
6: At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com.
2: Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems.
4: Welcome back to our final segment of your radio, Doctor. We're so happy that we have Dr. Sarah Jane Ward talking to us about medical marijuana. Again, just like vaping would be a great tool if we could help people taper away from regular cigarette smoking. Medical marijuana has so much potential, we just don't want it to evolve into being misused. So we're talking about possible side effects of marijuana in general. I mean, I see a lot of patients in my office, young people who eat well and they work out, but they might be using marijuana. Uh, You know, if I question more, can slow your GI motility and give people really bad belly pain, and we'll do upper and lower endoscopy and CAT scans are all normal, then we do a motility study. I don't mean to get off on too much of a tangent, but I think it's important for people to know that the word medical doesn't mean go for it. It means we still have to be careful and be aware, tell your doc, if you're taking, using marijuana, what should people look for for side effects?
8: Yes, correct. Yeah. So because medical cannabis products can be very similar to recreational cannabis, um, any of the adverse effects that are associated with recreational cannabis use, can be found with medical cannabis use, especially if your medical cannabis product contains THC. Um, Mm -hmm. By and large, the adverse effects of cannabis are going to relate to the amount of THC in the product with higher amounts of THC being associated with more adverse effects. Uh, You mentioned uh, GI motility. We know that cannabis can slow GI motility, uh, cannabis can also cause paradoxical nausea and vomiting. Some, many people think of cannabis use as something that can suppress nausea and vomiting. Uh, but there is a very scary increase in something called cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, where folks who are using high THC containing cannabis um, can develop a very debilitating um, vomiting syndrome that can and you know, bring them into the emergency department. Um, also, it's possible to develop a cannabis use disorder, something that wasn't talked about uh, in the previous decades. But again, as the amounts of THC can be drastically increasing in many of these products, unlike that that we had seen in the previous decades, there is a growing number of people people who are seeking treatment for cannabis use disorder. Folks can experience dependence and withdrawal and other
4: adverse effects. And I think that's so important. It's again, it's another parallel to vaping. It was originally designed with good intentions. We don't have very much data on it because it's relatively new compared to the data we have on smoking conventional cigarettes. And this we have data through the years uh, with smoking marijuana, but What is the uh, THC content now? It's so much more concentrated than the 60s, three to four times more THC?
8: Correct. You can find products that have over 20% THC, where the the common joint of the 60s might have contained 3% THC. So that is is a very significant difference.
4: And we know that one of the indications for medical marijuana is anxiety, but through the years, is there a question of the reverse? As you say, it may calm nausea and vomiting or cause it. Can can marijuana cause depression and anxiety? I guess there's so it's multifactorial.
8: Yes, there do seem to be links. There's also a lot of um, interpersonal differences, which is really fascinating. So many people refor- report feeling much less anxious when they use cannabis. And other people can have really bad experiences of paranoia. Um, especially, again, with high doses of THC. Another link between cannabis and mental health is schizophrenia, and this is something that people should take seriously. Um, I think the amount of evidence connecting adolescent cannabis use with the development of schizophrenia or sort of a exacerbation of schizophrenia when it may already have been in somebody's, um, you know, future is, is strong. And so that's another thing to pay attention to, especially if somebody, um, has schizophrenia known in their family. Um, so there, there should be, you know, there should be a lot of thought put into cannabis use in relation to mental health and mental illness.
4: (laughs) And make sure you're you're staying in touch with your doctor. If you are noticing changes, report them so that 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 your treatment can be tweaked or make somebody aware. Because as we say, oh, you walk into a dispensary and the docs aren't, and we as physicians, whoever orders it, aren't familiar with the dosages and such. Please watch for our listeners if you are using gummy CBD uh, products around your children there I was reading an article the other day big jump in number of little children who think it's gummy as candy or gummy vitamins and they're taking them and ending up in intensive care so that's a big news flash that we want people to remember and it's also not legal federally which simply means yes it's so, different in
8: every state yeah so the rules are all state by state and you know now we have over thirty states that have some form of legal CBD or legal cannabis, either medically and or you know recreationally. Uh, but it's still federally legal, which which complicates things really, and in in many ways makes things more confusing and perhaps
4: more dangerous as as federally illegal, meaning you have to go state correct. by state, right? Correct, because there are a handful of states that it's any forms prohibited. Correct, some states allow low THC and CBD only. Others say just comprehensive med. Dr. Sarah Jane Ward, thank you so much for being our guest. I love the website you recommend for people to visit, NIDA, National Institute of Drug Abuse, nida.nah.gov. Thank you so much. And I know you're at Jefferson sometimes now, so I'll look to see you.
8: Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure.
4: And now for your real champion, I call this segment The Promise of a Lifetime. More than 16 million Americans served in World War II, and over 120,000 became POWs, more than any other war or conflict. Here's the story of one who made it back. Tom Flannery looks back on his boyhood in Germantown, St. Francis of Assisi grade school, and LaSalle College High School. He was the second son of Andy and Nellie Flannery. They were born in Ireland met in Philadelphia where Andy owned Flannery Square Bar in Nicetown. Like many from his generation, the news of Pearl Harbor stirred Tom and his friends to serve their country. He remembers the call to duty on March 10, 1943. After five months of infantry training, he boarded the ship that traveled from North Jersey to North Africa. But when he landed in Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart wasn't there. He recalled that with a smile. His tour began in Sicily, 3rd Infantry Division Company B, but malaria put him on the sidelines for a while. On return to duty, he went to Naples for new glasses and remembers the moment his eyes fell on a statue of St. Michael the Archangel, the saint we asked to defend us in battle. Tom said a Hail Mary asking that he'd be all right. On January 22, 1944, Flannery and 200 other troops jumped from their amphibious assault ship into waters off of Anzio, Italy. His pack was full with a pup tent, blanket, sea rations, ammunition, and a rifle, along with a rosary and a miraculous medal with the face of the Blessed Virgin Mary. At six feet tall, he had to bob up and down in the ocean to keep his head above water. Their mission? To take the highway between Rome and Cassino as the Germans fought them back to the sea. During four months of battle in Anzio, his infantry suffered heavy losses, and on many occasions, Tom relied on his strong Catholic faith. His daughter Karen shared that her father made a promise to God that if he got back, he would go to Mass every day. On the day he was captured, Flannery wasn't supposed to be in that foxhole that was hit by German fire. He had gone to check on a buddy and decided to stay put. It all happened quickly, a pivotal battle. The Germans shelled all night, and when the bombing stopped, enemy troops came in the morning. It was April 26, 1944, and the shrapnel caused bleeding from his head, leg, and backside. He looked up from the foxhole to see the German soldier pointing a gun. This 21-year-old kid wondered, am I going to get shot or killed? He began to pray, because Private Thomas A. Flattery had just become prisoner of war flannery the germans took him to an aid station removed the shrapnel then to occupied rome where he had his first and only glimpse of the Colosseum. next to Stalag 7b in germany with 864 other american prisoners then to a work forum an article in the bulletin listed him as mia but his family found hope when his mother learned that he was a pow with the germans for a year and a day he was held captive They worked the hell out of us, he said, but he was grateful to be fixing rooftops and cutting grass knowing his fate would be much worse at the hands of Nazi SS troops. Farmers took the prisoners' clothes at night so they couldn't escape. They subsisted on warm black bread and milk with coffee made from chicory and acorns with an occasional parcel from home. Just before their rescue, guards moved them from town to town but then fled. Tom and four other prisoners were hidden by villagers in a cellar. He gripped the rosary and the Medal of Mary as he prayed to St. Jude, patron of hopeless causes. And once they were reunited with troops, they were sent home to Boston. He dialed Victor 40316. Imagine the joy and relief on the other end when he said, hey, mom, I'm home. Flannery met his love, Joan Donnelly, on the beach in Ocean City. After a short return to LaSalle College, he worked in his father's bar and eventually took charge. The couple shared 62 years of marriage and seven children before she died 10 years ago. One of their daughters is Kate Flattery, who plays the hilarious Meredith Palmer in the sitcom The Office. The picture in our newsletter shows Tom wearing his Purple Heart and other medals in a picture from Memorial Day of last year. On December 18th, he just turned 99 years old. He answered the phone when I called his Winwood home that he shares with his daughter Susie. He clearly remembers the details of his war experience, but never shared much detail with his family. Daughter Karen says her father wanted to forget about it and move on. His daughters also say he's so humble he won't take advantage of the free food for veterans because he doesn't think it applies to him. According to Flannery, the guys who didn't make it home were the real heroes. Thomas A. Flannery is grateful that he survived, and for 78 years he kept that promise. Karen says he wears his miraculous medal every day and he goes to mass every day. I thank Mr. Flannery's daughter, Karen, for providing so much of the story. And I want to credit Mari Schaefer, a writer from the Philadelphia Inquirer, for her great article from Veterans Day, November 11, 2016, which I also used as a source. And our biggest thank you to Tom Flannery for his service. It's men like Thomas A. Flannery who make us proud to be Americans. We salute you, Tom Flannery, your real champion. Thanks to listening to Your Radio Doctor every Saturday at 5 here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Listen to the show again and all of our shows on odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Follow us on social media. Email us at info at yourradiodoctor.net with a champion or a topic you'd like to hear about. Next week, learn about positive psychology and hear from Pat Croce, the man who is the definition of positive. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a positively happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love. Always here to remind you that your health is your wealth.
0: Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit YourRadioDoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded.